Amen. Good morning, Grace. What amazing words we've been singing this morning. I hope you haven't gotten jaded to Christmas carols. There can be a familiarity to well-known passages of Scripture and well-known songs that we sing, so there can be a warm sort of nostalgic familiarity, but in that you can lose the power of it. The importance of these words, the weightiness, the eternal value of these words. Well, it's Christmas time, and I must say, I, I don't think Christmas is my favorite holiday. I know that sounds horrible, but um, I love Thanksgiving. It, it hasn't been quite as commercialized, nearly as commercialized as Christmas. It usually gets run right over by Christmas and decorations and sales, but it, it's about gratitude, and I love that. And I find so often Christmas lacks the peace that it's really all about. I think traditions are really important. I'm committed to taking these times of the year seriously as a church and as a family. We have quite a few traditions we practice as a family. One of them is just decorating the house, and we did that last week as a family, and we really try to make it a warm, peaceful, special time. Donna has eggnog and hot cider ready and hot chocolate, and we play Christmas music and just spend a few hours decorating the house. But I was thinking about it, and I must say, even though we try, those times, I think, can be bad. <laughs> they can be really bad. And uh, I'm thinking of this last one, uh, this last one we just did last week. You know, we go and get all these decorations down and um, start decorating things, and invariably things aren't working the way they're supposed to, and Things aren't happening the way one individual wants them to happen or at the pace they're happening or something gets broken or invariably the light bulbs aren't working the way they're supposed to. And, and I find it's very easy, like it was the last time, for the issues those in our family have to be on display during those times. I was just thinking about it. There were tears that night. There was anger. There was sin. It seems like the only one who was demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit that night was Donna, which is an unusual. But, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing how a time that's supposed to be celebrating that the Prince of Peace has come can be filled with stress and frustration. And, and it's not just that the light bulbs aren't working, is it? It's really not it. That's just a catalyst, isn't it, for things much deeper in our hearts that are rising to the surface when those trivial things aren't happening. I mean, the problem when you're cursing someone in traffic, it's not really the traffic, is it? It's something in our hearts that's being unearthed, right, brought to the surface when we, we go through those stress-inducing times. And so... So it's helpful. It's helpful to experience what we call stress or anxiety or discouragement or frustration because we have an opportunity to do something with that in the moment in light of how we view everything. The bulb's not working. It's amazing. I don't think they've ever all worked. <laughs> 
Now I know you'll all have advice for me about how to store them in the off-season when we're over, but that's, I'm, I'm, that's not why I'm telling you this story. Please, think about what we're talking about here. I must tell you, preachers get very frustrated when people come up with serious advice about how to store your light bulbs when they give an illustration. Like, that's not why I'm talking about this, right? I'm wanting us to, Kenny's laughing because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this as examples to examine our hearts, not think about more tidy ways to store our light bulbs. We, we've got to pay attention to our hearts. See, even that, that's a great example of how we can get diverted from thinking about the things we need to be thinking about. And the reason I get so frustrated with Christmas and at times don't even like it is it gets filled with so many things that aren't about what the important things are about. And we get distracted. Distraction may be one of our greatest, if not our greatest problem in our day. Terribly distracted from paying attention to the things going on in our hearts. And if we pay attention, we'll all realize that our hearts understand, even if we're not conscious of it, the reality of living life in a dark world. I had the privilege of being a pastor and having funeral services and grade side services memorized. I don't even need to look anymore. It's an advantage. The Bible says it's good to go in the house of, of weeping, of grieving, even better than a party. Why would he say that? Because when you're, when you're dealing with death, you have no, no option, hopefully, but to face the realities of life. And if we pay attention, we will realize that we live in a sin, sick, broken world. I'm thinking of not reading the news for a year. I really am. It, it, it doesn't actually change that much. And the big things, oh, there are all the details that go along with it. But as long as I can remember, I started reading the news actually fairly young in my life. And it, it, doesn't, it hasn't really changed. You got wars. You got impending wars. You got active wars. You got cold wars. You've got sickness ravaging our bodies. You've got political strife. You've got families disintegrating. You've got things that are blessings from God being turned into idols that end up killing us. Then what are we going to do about it? Where are we going to find peace in all of this? I don't think I've actually watched a whole Seinfeld episode, but, but I, I, I've really laughed at some clips. And there's no clip on Seinfeld I've ever laughed more than George Costanza's father trying to deal with his anger problem. <laughs> He, does, uh, he has a serious anger problem. And apparently he got some advice from some counselor that when you're starting to feel angry and, and stressed, you should just say the words, serenity now. <laughs> we worked with a guy one time and his counselor told him when he was getting angry to say, I feel at peace and my hands are warm. Well, George was told to say serenity now. But the problem is George had such an anger problem that he basically said that in a way you would say cursing, right? Serenity now! He'd like scream it at people, right? And, and so it sort of defeated the purpose because just the way he said it fueled his frustration and anger with life. Serenity now. No wonder his 
son George proposed a holiday around Christmas for those who don't celebrate Christmas where they, they air their grievances every Christmas. You know, we have a way of doing that anyway, don't we, without it being formalized. So what are we going to do? Where are we going to find peace? There are all sorts of ways we try to find it. We can find it through substances, right? That either are making us drunk or high. It can be food. It can be uh, a relationship. It can be all sorts of things. It, it can be medication, and I'm not saying there isn't a place for that at times, but it can be just such an easy way to bring peace to our souls in a temporary way, and that's the problem. All these human solutions are so temporary. They're not lasting. They're fleeting. They're shallow. And so I don't just want a temporary sense of peace in the midst of the grief and the darkness and the brokenness. I want a real solution, and I want real, true peace. Don't you? Do you want just something that comes and goes? And then you need another shot. Or whatever it is that fills that for you. Where are you going to find real peace? Well, we have our last name of the four we've been looking at in this Advent season leading up to Christmas that are giving us the source of real, true peace, not temporary, shallow, fleeting solutions that feel peaceful for a while but aren't real, true peace. I hate imitations. I hate the fake thing when the real thing is available, don't you? And I, I want real peace, and I know you do too. And so let's go to God's word and find out how we find it. There is so much darkness and sadness and sin and brokenness and hostility and pain and relentless difficulty in this life. Ever since Genesis chapter 3 in the Bible, that's the reality of life in this fallen world. There's confusion and anxiety and stress and depression. And the fact is we're at war. And we need to acknowledge that, and we long for peace. We long for peace in our world. And even with all the convenience and affluence and comfort that we have in our society, it's inescapable. We lack peace. We long for peace. And how do you find it? Well, I, I just love Alistair Begg. He's, he's a dear brother amazing preacher but he said there are two ways to approach life and you know Alistair Begg is a huge Beatles fan he's a preacher from Scotland and uh, out in Ohio and and he said there are really two ways to approach life and they both boil down to the title of two Beatles songs he can quote most Beatle lyrics of it through, you know, by heart. But he said there are two ways of living, and they boil down to, to two titles of two Beatles songs. One, you can live life with the philosophy, we can work it out. We can work it out. Just give us more time, give us more education, give us better parenting, give us more resources, more money, uh, more seminars, more training, and we'll work, we can work it out. That's one option. He said the other option, though, is drastically different. It's help. I need somebody, not just anybody. <laughs> and that's the option the Bible points us to constantly. Not we can work it out, but help. I need somebody, not just anybody. And so that's what we're going to find in our passage this morning. 
And what we find in our passage is our help comes from somebody. It's a person. It's not just theories or, or pithy phrases that we put on our walls that are supposed to somehow give us peace. No, it's nothing short of a person, and that person is nothing short of God with us. God with us in the person of Christ. That's what we find is the only solution. We don't just need better ideas or theories or practices or practical anything. We need a person named Jesus. A savior to rescue us from the cold, harsh realities of life in a fallen world. I know you don't come to church, some of you, to get this bleak picture of things around Christmas time especially. But Jesus came into a very dark world. It was dark then and it's dark now. But the light has come and the light is Jesus. We don't just need principles. And this is one of the great I think, problems of the contemporary church, especially in the United States. We are principle and pragmatics driven. We love to come to church and get life hacks. We love to come to church and get, you know, give me five ways to do this better. And I do, I, if you and I sat down for lunch, I could give you lots of practical advice that I'm working hard to apply in my life to have more peace in my soul. One of them is get off the internet. I mean, do we need more research that says the internet and especially social media makes us more anxious, more discouraged, more defeated, body image issues? I mean, it goes on and on, yet ah, we're addicted. And that's just one thing. Another thing I would say is sing. Sing. I, I make myself sing. I'm never in a good mood when I wake up, ever. I don't think it's a spiritual issue. I think it's a blood sugar issue, but I'm just never in a good mood. And so I make myself sing in the morning. I do. And it brings a settledness to my soul. Just taking care of ourselves and, as bodies, souls, and minds in, in, in intentional ways. That's why we have all these New Year's resolutions and all these things we do because we want to take better care of ourselves. But if we disconnect those things from the real source of true peace, it'll go the way of just about every New Year's resolution. And even if we keep the resolution, it won't bring the kind of peace we desperately need. Let's, let's not fall into the life hack mentality as Christians. Christians can be among the worst. I mean, I, I listen to sermons and I read books and so much of it is how to, how to do this better, which is fine and, and good. And we need to think about that. We, we need to get practical, no doubt about it. But we so often skip over the actual source of peace and rush to the implementa- implementation of practices that bring a settledness of soul to us. And we wonder why it doesn't work. And so... I want to run to the Bible this morning and find out where this real source comes from. And we're going to read this passage one more time from Isaiah chapter 9. So please turn there in your Bibles. And realize that this is written 800 years before Jesus comes as the Messiah. Before the virgin conceives and bears a son as the prophet Isaiah prophesied would happen. And when this is written to the Old Testament saints, it's written in a very, very bad, dark time. We see in this passage the context that is brutally difficult. 
It wasn't an easy time. The Assyrians had invaded, taken over, and there was literal physical hunger and distress and darkness and gloom and rebellion among the people of God toward their God. And that's the context of this. I actually want to start reading in chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, all the way through chapter 9, verse 7. Here we go. Lord, help us. Isaiah 8, 20. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn They will pass through that land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And when they look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick Darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, as I read through this incredible prophecy, I I want you to listen to these prophetic certainties, these prophetic absolutes. There is absolutely no doubt about the reality of these things. Listen to how confidently, assuredly, these realities are spoken. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations and have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this? Do you hear the confidence, the assurity of these words? Count on it. Bet the ranch on it. Bank on it. It's happened and is happening, and you can base your life on it. 
And so we see in this passage wonderful truth about how you get to real peace. None of the things in this world can stop God's redeeming purposes. He's personally bringing about a world of peace through his Messiah. These prophetic perfects, you could call them, mean that these things are a sure thing. Count on it. And then we saw it through Fred and Rob's and Randy's sermons the last three weeks that Jesus, the Messiah, is a wonderful counselor. He brings amazing divine wisdom and guidance. He's a mighty God who brings almighty strength and power. And as we saw last week, he's an everlasting father who brings tender strength that never ends. Isn't it good that all these are here? Imagine a tender father who's not almighty, who can't actually accomplish what his tender heart wants to for you. Imagine a tender and strong father who's not wise and gives wise counsel. Imagine wisdom without tenderness or strength. I mean, all these beautifully work together. And this morning we look at our last one, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He brings quietness and rest through his authority as the Prince of Peace. So how do we find true peace? There are a lot of false offers of peace. And temporary offers of peace. I want the real thing. I want the lasting thing. And here's what we need to know that I want us to see out of this passage. One, there are, there are five things. Five or six. I don't know. Five or six. Uh, well, you'll, you'll find out. Five or six. Um, I added one, I think, last night. So here they are. You ready? Oh, they're right here. They're five. One. You got to get this one right or nothing else is going to be right. One, we lack true peace because we've rejected God. We lack true peace because we've rejected God. Yes, there are lots of things we can do to help a sense of settledness in our souls. There are a lot of things we can avoid doing to bring a settledness to our souls. But the bottom line is the reason we don't have peace is because we've rejected the God of peace. We've gone our own way. Sin is our problem. Not New Year's resolutions, unless that resolution is to get right with God. That's the only one that will actually bring true peace. So we lack true peace with God because we've rejected him. Two, true peace has a source in God himself. True peace has a source in God himself. Three, true peace is brought to us by God himself. It's found in him and it's brought to us by him. Four, true peace doesn't depend on your feelings. True peace doesn't depend on your feelings. And five, true peace requires repentance and faith in Christ and obedience to the Prince of Peace. And then you will start to find true peace, lasting peace for your soul. Let's go through these one at a time. One, we lack true peace because we've rejected God. Look at chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. It makes it very clear that the people are in a desperate situation, a very dark and broken world, but their response is not to the run to the God of peace, but to rebel against him, to look on him with contempt. Look at his representative king with contempt and God himself with contempt. And so whether they turn their faces upward or downward to the earth, they can't find solutions because they've got hearts of rebellion toward God. 
And even if your rebellion looks like passive indifference to God, it's still rebellion. The nations are at war. They always have been. But all the war starts with being at war with God. The Bible says that we're enemies of God in our sin. Enemies of God. That that sounds extreme, you know. There are a lot of nice moral people who've never bowed the knee to the Messiah Jesus. And you look at him and you say, well, that guy's a nicer guy than I am. By God's common grace, there's amazing goodness in the world in the midst of the darkness, for sure. But if never, no one has ever been reconciled to their creator, the Bible says they're an enemy of God, a child of darkness. And they need light, they need peace from God. And they can fill their life with temporary solutions and external goodness but if their heart is ultimately hard toward God, they're an enemy of God. They're in rebellion against him. They're part of the problem, not the solution. And what we need to realize that what rebellion against God, when we go to war with God, as foolish as that sounds, and it should sound foolish to us, when we go to war with God, you know what happens? We go to war with each other. The reason it's hard for us to have a pleasant, decorating evening in the Taunus home is because of where our hearts are. And the reason I'm able to use my family so freely as an example of the reality of sin that's still present is because I know it's true of your family too. And so... Why? why? We're at war with each other, even in our closest relationships. And in some ways, the closer the relationships, the more trusting the relationship, the more potential there there is for, for devastation, for deep hurt and betrayal. I mean, I don't care if some person online trashes me that I don't even know. Right? But somebody, somebody close... We were watching a movie with the kids the other night, and there was this moment of just betrayal, and Sam just blurts out, Judas! Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a Judas reality. We're, we've betrayed God, and so we're betrayers. We, we betray trust. We're self-seeking. There needs to be a transformation if we're going to ever live and love like Jesus. Seeking your good instead of mine. That doesn't come naturally to me. And so our problem is rebellion against God. And when we're at war with God, we're at war with each other. And as nations, as families, as friends, even churches. I mean, these past couple years have been brutal to show how disunified the church can be over relatively peripheral issues. It's been grievous. It's been grievous to see how judgment calls that are far more, I think more Christians have a stronger opinion about their view of masks or no masks than they do about the deity of Christ. And and so we've got to focus on what really matters. And and the church can lack great uh, unity and harmony that Jesus calls us to because we don't focus on what matters most and what's at the heart of of everything in our lives. 
And so we need to realize that we're at war with each other. We're at war with the creation itself. You know, this virus we've been fighting and now the variants of the virus? It's a great example to say, oh yeah, the whole world is in disharmony with, with the creator. When those made in God's image rebel against him and that relationship's broken, there's, there's a fracturing in every level. And now we're at war with the world. With, with it's red in tooth and claw has been said in the animal world and in the human world. There's brutality and death and destruction. So I know people say, you know, I just find communion with God in nature far better than, than at church or the Bible. And I say, well, what is that animal eating another animal's entrails after it just killed it, it tell you about nature? And the, I mean, it's pretty selective what we look at. There's plenty of evidence that we got a massive mess. And there, there are cells called cancer cells that devastate us. We're, we're at war with the creation itself. We're at war with ourselves. I have a war raging within me. You do too, the Bible says. The apostle Paul, this godly man, says, I've got a war raging in me. I do the very thing I hate. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do it. We're at war with ourselves. So if we don't wake up realizing that we're at war, first with God and then with each other, and, and then with the creation itself and then within ourselves, we're going to get blindsided by how serious this problem is. So the problem all starts with rebellion against God. But two, true peace has its source in God himself. I don't want you to miss this. We rush to God's revelation of peace even in his redemptive work, and don't realize that everything that's good originates in God himself. So I just want to throw definitions of four attributes of God at you. You ready? The first one is peace. Here it is. And it means in God's being and actions, he's separate from all confusion and disorder. There's no conflict in God. He's not at war with himself. In everything he is and in everything he does, there's a settledness, a wholeness, a peace, a shalom, this beautiful greeting. He's not at war, and within himself he's got relationships, Father, Son, and Spirit, and there's perfect harmony and perfect unity. Nobody had an argument about who was going to send and who was going to be sent and who was going to bring about the virgin conception. It worked out perfectly. So within God and in and, and everything he does then, there's perfect settledness of soul. Uh, there's a qualification on here, but that doesn't mean passivity. At the same time, he's always active in innumerable, well-ordered, and fully controlled simultaneous actions. Yes, lots of big words there, but it just means that his peace doesn't mean that he's inactive, passive at all. We have that idea that it's just sort of emptying your mind. First of all, you can't do that. It's not even possible. And it means some sort of uh, tranquility that's separate from all the confusion of life. No, Jesus walked into the messy confusion of life and went to war with it in his own soul and on behalf of those who trust him. And so I want you to realize there, there are tons of overlapping attributes of God. And so perfection's another one. It's very related. It means there's nothing in God that's lacking. There's no part of any quality in God 
that would be desirable for him. You'll never look at God and say, man, if he just had a little more of that or that. There's no need for improvement with God. He's perfect, which is very related to his peace. And then a very related one, blessedness or happiness. Yes, I think we should use that word for God. I don't use the phrase, we want joy, not happiness. No, that's kind of um, joy that doesn't laugh. And the Bible says that God will fill our mouths with laughter. But, but blessedness means God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his character. And so, so he's the blessed God. And we can become blessed when we know this God. And finally, beauty. He's the sum of all desirable qualities. When you look at something beautiful, have you been looking at the snow-covered mountains the last few days? <sighs> I, I, I wake up and I look at those mountains and I say, take that, Colorado. <laughs> I do. And you don't have any beaches. We do. Right, so I go ahead, move to Colorado, but look at this four days a year. So um, and especially when the, the, the red glow of the sunset is on those, oh, man. When you look at that, what you feel is settledness of soul. You go, oh. And you're not saying, man, it'd be just better for you. You don't want to become a a decorator, right? God did a good enough job for you, and you get a settledness of soul. Well, God's the source of all that. Every time you see that in creation, don't say, look at that beautiful, snow-covered, glowing red mountain. Say, how about the God who made that? If that gives me a sense of settledness of soul, how about the God who made it, knowing him as my everlasting father? Now that will bring ultimate settleness of soul. And so th- these attributes are vital to understand that peace begins with God himself. It, it's in himself. And then three, we realize that true peace is brought to us by God himself. He's the source of it, and he loves to bring it to us. He loves to be the source of peace for us. Don't think God's stingy with his peace. He's ready, waiting, willing, eager, lovingly, lavishly pouring out peace, and he wants you to receive it. You just need to know you don't get it without him. We want the experience, but the God who comes with it sometimes isn't one we want. True peace is brought to us by God himself, by his very presence. That's what it says in Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin will conceive, just one page back, it tells us, and this child who will be born will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He brings it. That's why Jesus in Matthew 4 quotes our passage this morning to make sure everybody knows he's the fulfillment of what Isaiah is promising will come. He brings his peace to us, God does, through his covenant, through the entire history of redemption, through daily bread, but ultimately through the Messiah, and then subjectively through the Holy Spirit who brings the Messiah's presence and finished work into our lives in subjectively understood and appreciated ways. And I want you to see how completely then Jesus brings this to us. Would you just flip to Ephesians chapter 2, please? Just go all the way to Ephesians chapter 2 and listen to this wonderful description of what Jesus brings to us. We're at war at every level. And listen to how Jesus brings peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. 
You ready? Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated, hostile toward, at war with, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. One man, a a new humanity, not separated by race and culture and language any longer, by, by demographic differences or income levels. No, there's one man now defined by the new man, Jesus, that brings a unity, that breaks down the dividing wall. We're not at war with God anymore, so we're not at war with each other anymore, even those so different than we are. Look at Colossians chapter 1. This, this is the solution. This is how Jesus brings this peace. Look at Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile, bring peace, all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Here it is. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And listen to what happens. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, see that's how we get it, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jesus is our source of peace. And did you notice? He brings a a peace. He brings a reconciliation. He brings an end to war with God. And that will one day end war on earth between nations, between human beings, between those in the same family. It'll bring an end to the war we have with creation. Goodbye cancer. Goodbye suffering and disease and viruses and sickness. It'll all be gone. And that's why the tears will be gone and the grief will be gone. And we finally have an integration within ourselves. We're not at war with ourselves any longer. Jesus brings true peace, true reconciliation through himself. We have been made this way in Christ. The hostility's gone between us and God, and now it dissipates everywhere else. 
And so true peace is brought by God himself. And that's the greatest news you'll ever hear. It's brought by God. And it doesn't depend on your feelings. When we think of the word peace, it's like other words, like guilt. We think of the word guilt, we immediately think of feelings. Think of the word peace, we immediately think of feelings. And I don't want to minimize the importance of getting peaceful feelings. But we sort of define everything by our feelings these days. And if I'm feeling it, it's true. If I'm not feeling it, it must not be true. And that's a deadly way to approach life because we're all in a process of getting to the point where we're actually feeling the things we believe. That's why we gather like this. That's what we're doing right now. We're connecting what we believe with how we feel, hopefully. Hopefully we leave with more peace than we came because we went to the Word and found out about the source of peace. And so we have to not depend on our feelings which come and go and are so fleeting very often. What we want is over time to be men and women of the Word and of worship and fellowship and prayer and service and giving and suffering to the glory of God, primarily in a local church context, and we will increase in our experience of peace. That's why we gather. That's why we take the Lord's Supper like we will this morning. So that we internalize physically and spiritually the reality of Jesus in our place through his body of flesh. You know, I, I have had the devastating experiences of looking a, a man in the eye who's been a Christian as long as he can remember, who knows the Bible very well, look at me and say, I'm leaving my wife for another woman, and I have a peace about it. Oh, do you? <laughs> you know, we put such a priority on our peace or our lack of peace. You know, I'm, I'm just not feeling it. That's all right. Today, it's not where we want to settle, but, but if we dictate reality from our feelings, we're in big trouble. We need to keep going in the way of faith, trusting Jesus, not our daily feelings or lack of feelings. I don't have a peace about it, people will say. Well, maybe it's still right. Maybe it's still God's way. That's why I've stopped using the phrase. That really resonates with me, as if that's the determiner of the worship time was good or not. And as if some great worship times are quite dissonant with my hard heart. Right? So, so if my feelings determine everything, I'm in big trouble. But finally, everybody doesn't get to have this peace. You know, peace on earth, goodwill to men. End it there. But then it says, on whom his favor rests. Some stay at war with God. Only those who repent and trust Jesus in saving faith get the peace we're talking about. You have temporary peace, but not this. See, the Bible says that you repent, you turn from your sin, and you trust Christ. And then, like the Colossians passage says, and like Hebrews 4 says, we've got to go to Hebrews 4. Just go to Hebrews 4 and look at this description of Jesus as our peace and where it ends up. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4 here, verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest, peace, for the people of God. Not for those who aren't among the people of God, though, right? For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest, well, that's kind of 
contradictory, isn't it? Work, strive, apply yourself to rest. Yeah. Yeah, you apply yourself to the means of grace. Diligently and faithfully and obediently, and you'll find rest for your souls. It's not inactivity, remember? It's not for God, and it's not for us either. So, so we strive to enter that rest. That's fascinating. So that no one may fail by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Hold fast. Hold on to it with all your might so you can have peace, in other words. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. So because of who Jesus is and what he did for us, what's the result? Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may find, receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of peace. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He's the source of it. And we can find true and lasting rest when we turn from our self-sufficiency, our, our we-can-work-it-out mentality, and we rather say, help, I need somebody, not just anybody, and that needs to be Jesus. He's the only one who can bring this to me. And Jesus alone then brings this peace. And notice he's the prince of peace. He comes with authority. You don't get this peace if you continue to live after some conversion experience of walking an aisle or even being baptized if you don't continue to submit to his lordship. He's the prince of peace. He's a royal authority who brings peace. You don't get the peace without the authority because if you think that, you're not understanding who he is. You don't know he's mighty God, everlasting father, and the wonderful counselor. You listen to what he says. This idea that you walk an aisle when you're eight and you're a Christian for the duration, even if you live like hell, is from hell. Those who are trusting Jesus most are obeying him the most. Those who love him the most, Jesus says, are the ones who are demonstrating their love for him through obeying what he says. Obedience and faith have no contradiction in the Bible. We, fin we rest in the finished work of Jesus and we get on with living lives of humble, faithful obedience, de depending on him, never wanting to veer from the path that is his that will actually continue to bring us peace. The peace Jesus brings comes with his divine authority and what a perfect way to lead into the Lord's Supper. As we go to the Lord's Supper, realize we are going to the Prince of Peace. We're going to the Wonderful Counselor. We're going to Mighty God. We're going to the everlasting Father, and we're going to the Prince of Peace, the only source of true peace. I don't know where you are finding, have been finding, peace in your life. God, and I representing God as a preacher this morning, deeply long for you to know true peace. I don't want a, an artificial version. I want the real thing, don't you? 
I want peace that really brings a settledness of soul. And I'm so grateful for how much I have experienced in my life. You know, I give examples of disconnects that are evident in my own life. But, but don't think that I, I don't have a deep peace in my soul that gets me through the hardest things of life. I do. There's an incredible, growing, enduring peace in my soul even when everything around is giving way. Because I know the God of peace is here with us. 